life in your 30s is antacids and pain in your joints. Hello, you are listening to Grape Culture, the podcast where we talk about wine, pop culture and feminism. I'm Kim. I'm Sam. And we hope you enjoy the show. On this week's episode, we are talking about the novel Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. But before we get into that, Kim, there's a bottle of red wine. Why is it here? Explain. Well, it's here because we have a podcast where we talk about pop culture and wine. Oh, shit, yeah. So I have the Taboo Malbec 2021. I got this from Waitrose for a very Mm. reasonable price. The reason I chose it is because this book that we're talking about today, as some of you might know, is all about an unconventional woman and covers quite a lot of taboos around it's America in in the 50s 40s and 50s including but not limited to unwed mothers adoption relationships outside of marriage Catholicism versus science Catholicism and the various issues within that culture so on and so forth women not being homemakers dare to dream I thought that it worked really well plus it's winter and I wanted a red wine two things to start off the podcast with before I read the description. Number one, spoilers. Mm-hmm. We'll be talking about the ending of the book. So if you haven't read it yet, maybe go out and get a copy. I recommend the audiobook. It's quite good. Number two, we're recording at my house and I have a cold. So if the cat doesn't interrupt you, my coughing or sneezing will. So, Taboo Malbec 2021. A taboo is a secret. It's something that shouldn't happen. It's an anomaly that this Argentine Malbec reached your hand. A mystery that it was revealed and now it becomes a privilege. Tabu Malbec is an intense red wine with violet shades and clear aromas of cherries and spices. Born in the mythical valley of Lujan de Coyo, Mendoza, Tabu has an ardent and bold charisma, dyed by its sharp fruit character, ripe tannins and smooth texture. This this Malbec sounds like the kind of guy that if they were at a bar would put their hand on your leg completely unasked. Which yeah. fits with the book. Or the, when they're moving past you, for whatever reason, have to put their hand on the back of your... On your back? On the small of your back. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Cheers. Cheers. It smells like strong. It tastes like strong. Not convinced so far. It doesn't... Doesn't really taste It might much. be the cold, but it doesn't really taste like much. No. It just tastes like, like spice. sharp red wine. It tastes like spice. So our tasting notes for this are not much. Yes. <laughs> Which can't really be said about Lessons in Chemistry. No, no. Lessons in Chemistry was many things. Kim, would you like to give a short summary of the book for anyone who either hasn't read it yet or may have forgotten? I'll do my absolute best. Lessons in Chemistry follows the protagonist, Elizabeth Zott, who is a chemist in 1940s and 50s America. Mm-hmm. She does not have a doctorate hoping to achieve her doctorate she has a master's from ucla and she wants to be taken seriously as a chemist she has grand ideas grand beliefs she is really excited about her research she comes from an unconventional background of a charlatan preacher father a tax evasion mother and her brother who unfortunately died by suicide and she in the course of her duties at the institute where she works where she's not really being taken seriously meets a man called calvin evans calvin evans which is such a name it's like it just made me think of calvin harris it made me think of like charles like it's, it's just name name <laughs> you know like it's just like generic boy name like name name like if there was a scrabble bag of men's names yeah you'd like, pull out calvin and not unlike you know john adams 
So she meets Calvin Evans and after a brief not being in love, they fall in love and it's very nice. Sadly, he dies quite unexpectedly, leaving her unwed, pregnant, and she is summarily dismissed from her job. After giving birth to her daughter, she sort of raises her, does the odd jobs and gets an accidental opportunity to become a TV chef, making home-cooked meals for the Housewives of America, which she insists on doing her way, not the TV studio's way, or because she basically goes into someone's office and yells at them for like half an hour, which is hilarious. And gives gives one guy a heart attack. Yeah, gives one guy a heart attack, A+. Stabs one guy with a number two pencil, also A+. Also great, yeah. So yeah, she she has a really quick rise to fame. The president watches her, everyone loves her. And then just as quickly, there's an expose written about her and her nefarious background and then it's kind of about her overcoming wanting wanting to be taken seriously whilst ostensibly being seen as the ultimate homemaker and while she completely advocates for people take it you know choosing that path if that if they want to her whole argument is that the women of america aren't all homemakers by choice and that she wants to speak to them like adults not idiots it's a very good summary of what is quite a convoluted plot at times yes there is a parade of characters which we'll go into yes lots of people a great dog excellent dog excellent dog some awful awful men two recognizably terrible men yeah it's a book that's been touted in a lot of places it's been nominated for various awards it gets a lot of acclaim from various institutes celebrities and it's hitting a lot of bestseller lists it's yes. hitting a lot of best of the year lists it had a i think it was seven way bidding war before it was even published Jesus. Yeah. which is mad mm-hmm. and practically unheard of for what i think is a debut novel and yeah it's just been like a huge sensation not just on sort of book talk and bookstagram but i really think quite a lot of i guess book talk is mainstream coverage now but i mean like traditional coverage like the copy that sam has actually has the between the covers from bbc2 sticker on it mm-hmm. so it's a really big deal it's in practically every kind of bookstore email i get it's mm very prominently displayed in bookshops it's clearly a a massive push for for the publishers with that in mind why do you think this is so popular and why do you think it has been so heavily touted i think one of the reasons is that we have seen a huge increase in books that feature women in science and certainly i think that's in the last 10 years but certainly in the last few years and i think particularly during the time of covid we've seen more and more of an interest in fictional books about science as we have we the general public have been more aware of scientists working somewhere away somewhere (laughs) Um, there were a huge number of books like i'm thinking of uh the love hypothesis was Mm, one the rosie project i think was another this is going to hurt which obviously is is a male authored book but that's Mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that's any less bad any less good and all these all these other titles so i think that the aspect of science is particularly interesting and i also think that the aspect of science in an era that is famously oppressive to women and, and homemaking and most of the reading that you do get about this is either you get just before where we're talking about the war and women in the war you know if we're looking at this from a female perspective women in the war working in factories or whatever and getting getting their way or we get just after with 
civil rights and then the swinging 60s and such like that then the last the last piece of that puzzle i think is the tv chef reality tv thing Mm. which we think of as quite a modern thing tv chefs and and that sort of thing but actually of course we know with people like julia child that it's been going back for yonks and yonks and yonks we've talked before about the modification of feminism and i don't want to say this is necessarily that but there has been a rise in stories with quote-unquote strong female leads being much more marketable than they were mm-hmm. a few years ago so i think that's that's probably part of it as well yeah and definitely the julia childs thing is the thing that i thought of when when i was reading it also it reminded me of i love lucy and all those like kind of classic 50s 60s sitcoms i think it all feeds into that nostalgia element yeah. that we're feeling yeah. Yeah, for sure. So with all of that in mind, was this the book you were expecting of a 1950s woman battling the odds, prove herself in a field that's not typically female-dominated story? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that I think that I, it hit all the points that I was expecting, you know, that the crumbling, the expected like U-turn of how her life went, the various sads, the various grosses, the clashing with someone who turns out to somehow help you. And, you know, she, she does make unconventional strides in unconventional ways. Also, in the not column, I think that the story didn't play out like I was expecting it to. And I think that that was a deliberate subversion of the traditional happy ending. But also the telling of it and the multiple characters and the multiple viewpoints and stuff, I think, were unexpected and more literary than perhaps I I necessarily was expecting this book to be, to Mm -hmm. be perfectly honest with you, based on the very brightly coloured cover (laughs) and the fact that it's everywhere, which, again, is my own biases that this book is exactly trying to underpin. So unpick, not underpin. Jesus, (laughs) that's an opposite. The way in which she battled things... And her, like, view on things was not narrow-minded, but, like, just so strangely matter-of-fact and uncompromising, which is the word that's used about her quite a lot, that I don't say that she didn't face challenges, because she obviously did, but her struggles weren't the struggles that I was expecting. The way that she internally reflected on her struggles and the way that she viewed overcoming those struggles neither of which I was expecting, I think were the hardest bits for me to like settle with. I only finished this book today. I I don't really feel like I found my footing with it, but it certainly was not the linear story that I was expecting, but I think that's probably the point. Yeah. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I agree. It was was surprising in that the plot did not go necessarily in the direction I expected, particularly with the death of Calvin. I I didn't see that coming, to be honest, until it was the whole thing about the dog leash. And then I was like, the dog's going to die. But then the dog didn't die. I'm so glad the dog didn't die. I'm so glad the dog didn't die. I mean, I know Um, it's really sad that Calvin died. Nah, sadder about the dog. (laughs) But if the dog had died, I would have lost my shit. And then I noticed when they said, so the end of the chapter before Calvin dies is he was dead 37 minutes later. Yeah, they didn't say whether he And they didn't say which he it was. And I was like, for fuck's sake. And I was like, he's not going to take the dog on the leash and the dog's going to run away. And then then they're going to break up. Like you knew something was going to happen because you knew that they weren't together anymore. Yeah, exactly. And as soon as like, I started cottoning on that he was going to die because they were so desperately in love and they got over their little fight. But then I was noticing all the times that they were saying, like, she lied, she lied, she lied. And I was like, is this going to be the thing? Mm, and yeah. then and then I was like, no, the whole point of this book is that it's never just one thing or the other. Lies are not, are not inherently bad or good. 
morality is not inherently black and white. Yeah. So yeah, it was very, very ambiguous. Again, the more I reflect on that, the more I'm like, oh, that makes sense. That's not meant to signify a negative relationship. That's meant to signify not everything is fuzzy and perfect. I was surprised by the the way the plot went. I started out, read the first, I don't know, hundred pages, and was like, I really like this. This is surprisingly funny. Yeah. And then when he went to the the guy Delotti, 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 the guy. Kenny? The guy that runs Hastings, which is the scientific institute. Dickhead guy, work. yeah. Dickhead. When he went to Dickhead, he being Calvin, to try and get Elizabeth her research back Yeah. after she'd been taken off it by this twat hammer who runs the place. And then he felt really smug about doing it for her. That was the point at which it stopped being funny for me. And I don't yeah. know if it was because that was the situation or because the writing changed or something. And there were points where I was like, if I saw this on a screen, which we'll get to later, maybe this would be funny. But the story stopped being funny and I was like, I don't like it as much. I think I think I agree because I think that's the point at which you knew that this wasn't the story you were expecting. Yeah. And I think that that is because, yes, that's the part where you start to see not cracks in their relationship, but the grey. And the inequality. And it's also where you start to realise that no matter how much he loves her and he doesn't always see the obstacles or doesn't believe that women shouldn't be in science or anything, he still a man of his time and that you know possibly and probably i think judging by what we know of him had they had a chance to grow together they would have overcome those things and i think that one of the the best testaments to that argument is their decision to live together and move in together after he proposed and was rejected and so i think that that was that was the first point at which you start to realize that it's not going to go a nice way which means that whatever's going to happen is going to be more wrenching. And it also means that whatever she has to overcome is more than just the the everyday. And I think that's the thing, because that was an everyday thing and that was an everyday occurrence. And you know that if he had lived, she would have found it out eventually and all that sort of stuff. Whereas the fact that he didn't live, the fact that she didn't find out for years, the fact that she got her, her research back on track, like all of that would have come to a head much sooner if he'd been alive. Mm. The fact that it didn't, means that everything that she had to go through was so much greater than the everyday sexism horrible stuff that we have to deal with and this isn't even touching on the probably most unexpected part of it for me except that I was fortunately warned by a book writer podcast before I started reading or just after I'd started reading the book which was the on-page sexual assault yeah which is difficult for anyone to read without difficult to read when you're only 20 pages into a book as well yeah. very soon in yeah so first thing was what i found interesting about the scene in the canteen where he p- proposes by basically just flinging out a ring and being like marry little <laughs> tiny box yeah little tiny with the smallest big diamond or the biggest small diamond or the way it was described which is quite cute but is that that whole scene is told from his point of view and but of the two of them of elizabeth and calvin is told from calvin and it's interesting because of this idea that women are so so very emotional and they react to things emotionally. Yeah. <laughs> Winnie disagrees entirely. <laughs> well, you're, you're, you're clearly a, a woman of logic, Winnie. Very important interjections. And then what you're getting from Elizabeth is these very logical responses to this yeah. situation of like, yeah, but this doesn't actually make any sense. And it's Calvin's response that is the emotional one. That's like, yeah. well, why doesn't she want to marry? Well, you know, she'll change her mind. She'll want to do this stuff. and it's. But we love each other. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which I thought was really quite clever. Yeah, um, me too. And then the other thing was you spoke about his his death and you know how much, how in love they were and all that kind of thing. 
and how some of these and how some of these revelations don't come out too much later about what he did in terms of her research. But then I couldn't decide whether him dying early in the book was a way to preserve their relationship by the author or a way of not dealing with the fallout of what he'd done. I think probably subconsciously. I don't think that it was necessarily intentional. So the end of the audiobook has, at least on Audible, has a brief interview with the okay. author. Yeah. And I think that from my... I, I feel like what she said there, or at least from my impression of what she said, was that when she began to write the book, she already knew that he died. Right, okay. So the book started because Elizabeth was a character in an un written book that she had started writing and then and left a very tiny tiny character i'm giving away audible secrets here Saul's audible, mm. and that she couldn't let her go okay and that she basically had more or less her whole story in her mind or at least found her more interesting and so she knew when she began writing it and also that she wrote the first section quite quickly, I think she said, that, that he was going to die. I don't think she put it exactly in those words, right. but I think that it was the impression that I got from listening to it. Bearing in mind that I was lying on my bed with a cold, being like, <laughs> so could be completely wrong and I could have hallucinated <laughs> the whole thing. But yeah, so I, I don't think that consciously it was a choice to be like, oh, I've written myself into a corner mm. with this perfect love story. Mm. I think that she always wanted her to to do her own thing. She always had to get her to Supper at Six, which was the name of the TV show that she posted. Yeah. And to do that, he had to be dead. Right. And also, I think that if you know that a character is going to die, maybe you can push things a little bit further. Mm. So with that all said... Did you find this book believable? Did you find it relatable? Any other apples? Apples. Any other apples? Found it readable. Good. Okay. So that's an apple <laughs> we can add on Audible. Next. Sponsor us. I did find it believable. Okay. And I think the reason that I found it was believable was because after my first initial doing my best. We all get it wrong. Unconscious bias, 21st century feminist brain went, this would never happen. And then I was like, why the fuck not? <laughs> what? Lady scientist and cooking? Sitcom says not allowed. And then I was like, wow. <laughs> wow, you need to check yourself. I think it was the the lady scientist coming in and doing what she pleases without being pulled off the air and sacked. I think that was the thing. Yeah, that was to be fair, I think that was probably the yeah. thing that was the most... It was. It was the way... As a chronically anxious person mm-hmm. who cares deeply about all things, all the time, the fact that she was just like, I need this, so I'm doing it. This is for me, and I'm important, and I'm clever. And I'm like, I probably ask people if they still like me like at least once a day. <laughs> so I don't feel like me and Elizabeth Zott would necessarily be pals. Mm. But at the same time... I did find it relatable because I think that it's very hard not to relate to the myriad aggressions and microaggressions in this book. And I think one of the most powerful moments for me was when Elizabeth is arguing with Miss Frask, who is a secretary in personnel, who had aspirations of being like a psychologist and everything and found herself working in personnel and then was told as part of her essentially KPI to lose 20 pounds. Yeah. Which, God, I was so mad. 
all the scenes, all the scenes in which anyone was being fired or anything made me very angry. But yeah, no, there is a scene where they are arguing in the toilets and, and she's basically like, why are you even here? Like, why did you leave? Like, why did you study at UCLA? Why, why this? And she's like, because I was sexually assaulted by my thesis advisor and forced to leave. And then she goes, Miss Rask goes, oh, same. And that's it. And then they they just have this. They're not suddenly best friends. No. They're not suddenly pals, but they have like this trauma bond. Yeah, trauma bond. This kind of like circling of. I don't even think I'd call it respect, but just like acknowledgement, acknowledgement, and they sort of help each other out. Towards the end, there's certainly clear respect and appreciation yeah. for each other. But yeah. that was such a powerful moment, and it you know it. I couldn't not think about me too. Yeah. yeah, and that moment there, and I think you know, like it was like a ni- it was a nineteen fifties Me Too moment, and I think that's the thing that's so relatable about this book, which is fucking infuriating. Of course, mm. that that's the relatable thing. How about you? Mm. Relatable, believable, Ubble. Edible. readable, edible, um, amenable, uh, spreadable, it's so... incredible. <laughs> I agree. The infuriation was believable. The some of the comments that were said, you like. If the, even if this hasn't been said in such a very get back in the kitchen 1950s aha way <laughs> your favourite voice it, yeah and it, it spans any time period from 1920 to <laughs> 1964 <laughs> even if it's not exactly those words there are attitudes to which the, the, which this book addressed which we have as women have obviously come up against like why don't you go and get your boss or why didn't you you know like <laughs> why didn't you go and get a man sweetheart which still happen yeah. not in this not necessarily in this very overt way, but yeah, it, it still comes up. Not very necessarily in this very overt way to us, white, middle-class-ish, educated yes. Yes. women in the UK. Yeah, very good point. Probably to a bajillion other people in the UK and beyond in any different kind of setting, in any different kind of class, race or economical background. I think, and even then it still happens to us, but I just think that like... Just to acknowledge our bubble, I guess. Yes, very good point. And it's a good distinction to make is that we are talking from our experiences. But anyone as a woman, I am going to say this as a very big generalisation, but anyone who is female femme presenting will have experienced some kind of dismissal in their life of what you're saying doesn't matter. You're a woman. Which this book does, again, yeah, very, very overtly because of the time and the, the... situation but that i did find relatable and found it all the more infuriating for it being relatable but yeah in terms of believability i don't know i don't think so i don't i didn't find it believable because again i don't feel like this woman would have had massive success on television not because what she was doing was unrelatable but because i don't think she would have been allowed to do it yeah i think that's that's the leap of faith but i think the the thing that we're forgetting, or the thing that I keep forgetting about this, is that I think they're in Iowa. Yeah, they're not. They're in California. California. Anyway, it is. Um, it is yeah, but like, yeah. it's it starts off as a local TV show, and I think one of the things that we don't we don't understand because we don't we neither work in this industry nor did we work in this industry then, and I've got a glimpse of it in some of the books we've read, and I think you have too, that the amount of TV studios and the reach of TV studios was actually incredibly local, which is why I think that it's ever so slightly believable, and I think that 
you can make a case for it and it's probably why worse shows existed i mean the clown show sounded horrible (laughs) yeah yeah again in the author interview on audible they talk about like oh you're not a scientist you know was it hard to do the research and she was like oh yeah blah blah blah. i did the research but i was thinking like it's interesting that the, the thing that most interviewers and interviewees assume is that the thing that is going to be hard for the general general person to grasp is the scientific world as if we haven't all seen a lab with Bunsen burners and beakers. <laughs> Whereas I actually think that the thing that's hardest for us to grasp is, weirdly, how TV works. Because the whole point about TV is that they don't tell you how it works. Yeah. Shiny box makes entertainment. <laughs> Shiny box do picture sounds. And it just so happens. Uh-huh. Have you ever been in a TV audience? Yes. It's a weird experience, isn't it? Yeah, Alan Carr, Chatty Man. Oh, you're ch- oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. I think Rita Ora was on. And then I think like the week, two weeks before or two weeks after, it was Taylor Swift and I was livid. Oh, what can you do? Chatty fume. So we are going to have a small break. Top up our glasses. I was trying to think of some sort of chemistry pun. I failed. Top up our beakers. That's the best I could come up with. With some ethanol. <laughs> <laughs> no, we're bad at this. My house ghost was so offended by this, it tried to knock over my wine. So we're going to have a break. We are going to top up our glasses and then we're going to come back and talk some more about Lessons in Chemistry by Bonnie Garmus. So we're back from the break to talk some more about the book. But before we do, how are you finding the taboo at Malbec? It was a Malbec, wasn't it? It is a Malbec. It's not very taboo. It's not. It's just. It's not. just. It's. It's very. It's not bad. It's not bad. It's good. Mm. It's not great. It is perfectly drinkable. Would add this to the rotation. Weeknight Malbec for an affordable price that is fine it's got better since the first sip it actually now tastes of something more than heartburn (laughs) it's quite fruity i still prefer trevento Mm -hmm. which is the baseline for all like easy drinking basic bitch malbec it seems a bit bland but i am adding an asterisk there that i do have a cold i don't and i can't taste much that's a shame it's a real shame because with a name like Taboo, you kind of want it to be a bit challenging. Audacious. Yeah. And I was thinking, when I bought it, I was thinking about that coffee Malbec that we had. Yeah, that you and Alex really liked. And, and you didn't, didn't like. But yeah, that. But I was expecting something quite spicy. It's just not really anything. I don't hate it. Neither do I like it. It's fine. It's fine. It's there. I think that this is a bottle of wine that you could get away with giving to someone and giving them the impression that it both costs more money and is fancier than it is. I'll be interested at the end of the episode to know the price, which we will get to. Yes. But before we do that, lessons in chemistry. Yeah. The chemistry happening between this wine and my stomach acid is interesting. So we talked a bit in the first half about the plot of the book, what we thought in terms of how infuriating or not it was and we talked a bit about elizabeth who is the main character that is elizabeth zott who when you said it earlier sounded like elizabeth salt and i was like was that intentional but that might have just been my ears 
because old (laughs) (laughs) true but what did you think of elizabeth as the protagonist because you mentioned that in interviews with the author she'd said that elizabeth wasn't necessarily intended to be the main character to begin with but she was she came into her head as a fully formed character yeah to, to know more about her what did you think of her i don't want to say that i liked her but I really, I relished her. Like, I enjoyed her. And I thought that she was exactly the kind of character that I wanted to read. Where it's not about, like, that she has to learn to be more amenable to people. That she has to stop being prickly. That she that she suddenly becomes a quote-unquote normal human being mm. when she falls in love. Or, likewise, that she is retrospectively diagnosed with some kind of autism or neurodivergence Mm -hmm. and therefore that makes her completely understandable and acceptable and she learns to cope with it and therefore can deal with how everyone else wants her to be she the the word that i keep coming back to because that's the word that the book keeps coming back to the reviews keep coming back to is uncompromising Mm. and i don't necessarily always believe that uncompromising is a good thing Mm -hmm. and i don't necessarily think that elizabeth stott's inability to compromise is always a good thing however i do think that her uncompromising confidence and character and the fact that the integral thing which is that she never bended to be smaller than Mm. she was and that when she when she was close to that someone was there to be like why are you doing the thing that you say that you won't do and then she didn't do it And I think that that was, I just, I found that not necessarily refreshing is the wrong word, admirable is the wrong word. I just needed it. I think I just needed it. Like, I think it was just the right thing for this character and possibly, in answer to, you know, our first question, like possibly the reason why this book holds such weight is because maybe other people are seeing that. It's not about her, what she goes through, the plot itself, the believability of it. It's just that fact of... I don't always have to make myself small. What about you? Yeah, she was a tricky character in that I couldn't tell if I liked her or not. All right, Wiley Coyote. <laughs> I appreciate what she was and what she was was unapologetic. Yeah. And that was great. And like you say, she never tried to shrink to fit in. Also, what's interesting, I think, is that she never kind of said, I'm a great chemist. I'm a great this. She was also just always just like, I am a chemist. And that was enough. Yeah. She didn't feel like she had to profess how good she was it's she just all let she what she did yeah stand for itself yeah. yeah which was really nice and it was interesting as well because in my head while i was reading it i was like oh is she neurodivergent and then i was like why does it matter yeah why am i thinking that because there's this woman who won't flinch on things and is very direct why do i have to put her in that box so i think it was good to not have that be part of her identity i think the temptation was there to diagnose both elizabeth and calvin yeah yeah. with a number of different things and i think what this did really well was acknowledge the psychological aspects of their characters with relation to their upbringing and their drive and the things that they did and did not adhere to or the things that they did and did not want without first of all using modern terminology that would not have been available to them and also without pigeonholing them into some kind of feel-good morality tale which i'm all for positive experiences of people with every single background that there is i think that 
I would like to see more positive books, frankly. So many of the big buzzy books are negative or tragic or trauma based. Mm. And this has always been an issue with black POV characters. But at the same time, like I don't think that it's necessary for you to identify a character with your specific trait in mm. order to relate to that character. And I think that by being true to the fact that maybe she would never have been diagnosed with any kind of neurodivergence if she has any, speaks to the fact that not every person that, and this is going to sound possibly a little bit insensitive, but not every person that doesn't necessarily fit in is specifically neurodivergent hmm. or has a, has a medically diagnosed condition yeah. that can be used. Yeah, it's it's true. And it, and especially considering the the attitudes to willful women as you know as we talked about in various mm. other episodes you know being hysterical or there must be something medically wrong with them for a woman to stand up for herself in this situation and to be so confident in her own capabilities and things like that why would we need to put a medical label on it doesn't we don't need to yeah but one thing i will say that was interesting about elizabeth whether i liked her or not is that this was a plot that was based around the fact that she didn't really change that yeah. she didn't flinch she, she adapted slightly but it wasn't one of those like let's say, Grease moments where yeah. the main character has to go on this huge journey of transformation. No. The key point was that she stayed true to who she was. Yeah. Which was quite quite cool and something you don't always see in a book of this nature. Yeah. If anything, this is almost the blip. The blip. The blip. You know that there are sometimes in novels, there's the, the sort of 60% way through the period where they yeah. are being not themselves they are doing the wacky thing i'm thinking you know to to use a very pop culture reference like the mean girls where she can't even recognize herself because she's too busy putting on lip gloss or whatever like that's the blip that's the blip from who they were when they started to who they were at the end they know a bit more they've seen the other side if anything this is the blip and i think that i agree she didn't change the core fundamentals of what she was trying to say didn't change and i think that that is very hard and I think that that is one of the credits that I really want to give to this author because I do think that this book, even though I have a lot of criticisms and I don't necessarily like five star love it rave review, but I do think that it deserves a lot of the accolades that it's getting. It deserves to be a read book. It deserves mm. to be a well reviewed book because that that I do think that that is a interesting and difficult line to pull off is having an unlikable character that doesn't change. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think that she's fully unlikable to everyone, but she's not... She's not accessible in the way that many everyman main characters are. Yeah. And that's both a good and a bad thing. Yeah. And she's directly appealing to a market that I think that traditional marketing tells you not to market to. I've said the word market too many times. So yeah, for such a straightforward character, she was complicated in... I think, in the way that she comes across to an audience. So we talked earlier a bit about Julia Child and other TV chefs and Lucille Ball as well, and I Love Lucy. Did this book remind you of anything else, whether it be another TV show? Did it remind you of another book? Yeah, was it Was it similar to anything you've read before? Nothing immediately comes to mind, but there was a sense of reading about difficult women in times where difficult women weren't tolerated and i think the closest thing that i can think of and it might just be recency bias and also the julie and julia connection is that i was thinking about the way that anna wintour is described in the chiffon trenches by andre leon talley and also then the version of her that is presented in the devil wears prada (laughs) 
by the great Meryl Streep. Obviously, that was a book first, but I never read the book. I watched the film. And I think that Anna Wintour is more brazenly ambitious and cutthroat than Mm. Elizabeth Zott is. And I think that that is... There is less compromise. Mm. And I think that's part of why she felt a bit more special to me, is that lack of ambition, but still lack of compromise. In the sense that she wasn't trying to be a Nobel Prize winner. She was trying to be on the run. It reminded me of a book that I read many years ago that I've forgotten the name of, so you're welcome, everybody. But... <laughs> It'll be in the show notes if she can remember. <laughs> it will be in the show I looked at my bookcase earlier and I was like, I've got too many books piled in front You've of You've got like books. four <sighs> depth bookshelves. So it was, this, it was this book that was, it was about a woman who was a TV chef, which I think is basically where Link comes in. And I don't know if you've ever seen, there's a, I think it's called Life As We Know It. There's that Catherine Heigl film about... I know uh, of it. A woman whose friend and husband die and then she and this random guy are left to bring up their daughter. And this book is basically about a woman who's a TV chef who's in the same situation. Yeah. So it reminds me of that for obvious reasons. And I will put it in the show notes if I remember what it is. But in terms of the tone... And the way Elizabeth is, it reminded me a bit of Eleanor Oliphant is completely fine. Yes, um, yes, that's very, a good point. Very literal, very dry character with a very traumatic background. But Eleanor Oliphant was obviously a very different story. But the characters shared a similarity in this unintentional humour, I think. Mm. So Elizabeth was a complex character. And we talked briefly about a few of the other characters. Was there anyone that will stand out for you in this book good or bad as a character i think that a lot of the side characters were very side yeah and you love a side character i do and i have to say one of the things that stands out for me is that the big ending with wilson Mm. and parker Mm. like they don't stand out to me they are nothing characters and they had this big emotional story. And I was a bit like, oh, I don't really care about you. But I do love me. I love Waverly. Who's, who's the, the priest, reverend. right? Yeah. yeah. So yeah. he is Calvin's pen pal friend. Accidental pen pal. Accidental pen pal. Who, and they discussed like chemistry versus faith. And, mm. f- and fathers and all this sort of stuff. And he sort of, by happenstance, becomes Madeline, who is Calvin and Elizabeth's daughter. <laughs> I love that she's... Madeline, short for mad. Yeah. Yeah. Becomes her confidant and encourager. And at first I thought that he knew. When he appeared behind her and said, I thought that he knew what he was doing. But then it was just like, oh, no, it's clearly just like in his his heart, like in his brain. And I, I loved him for multiple of reasons. Not least because I thought that he was... An interesting example of someone who had faith and understands faith and understands compassion, mm. but maybe doesn't necessarily believe in the literal God of the Bible, which is, I think, a very hard line to play. Yeah. And one of the other books that I've read of a similar time period is Prayer for Aaron Meany, which also struggles with Reverend Sons and Faith and ex- Spoilers for Aaron Spoilers for Aaron the sequel that never got made. And and it's one of my favourite books. So it's a, it's a thing that I really enjoy in fiction when it's done well it's a thing that i really hate in fiction when it's done badly so i I think that's why i liked him i thought that he seemed like we got quite a lot of his internal world and Mm. i liked that his motives were always kind of good motives basically there wasn't a lot of underhand with him there was a bit of like second guessing myself Mm. and stuff and keeping white lies but 
the challenges that the book provoked for him were for me very interesting not in a depressing way that I think sometimes when you get a man who is a priest and then they try to challenge their faith and you're like oh my god this is the so sad and this is just everything is terrible and I think that his point you know like the point there was religion isn't terrible Mm. religious people aren't terrible certain things around it are terrible so I just it was again that kind of multifaceted person who can believe many things that you sort of forget can happen in fiction and therefore in real life I also liked and really appreciated that she got a shout out at the end of the book Harriet Elizabeth's best friend yeah Um, neighbor into best friend auntie harriet i guess you'd call her like if you were a child of the 90s she was the neighbor best friend troubled housewife encourager guardian angel yeah and the fact that she always she was the one that introduced the concept to madeline of the fairy godmother when she herself was a fairy godmother in many ways and i just thought that she is the epitome of I just think that they were both epitomes of valuable people in your life, which are, they are multifaceted, they have their own lives going on, and they both were shown their own complex, detailed lives. They weren't just cardboard cutouts, but also the fact that she, she was of a generation and of a time that you would probably assume of Elizabeth's generation, feel one way and do one thing, and indeed Elizabeth thought, thought that, and it turned out not to be true, and it was just a really good show, not tell of... Don't judge a book by its cover. Everyone is complex. So I appreciated her for that. Yeah, Harriet was in some ways very, like you say, middle-aged, 1950s. The housewife, there was more to her than that. And that was obviously a big part of the book. Don't write off women who are homemakers. and Don't write off anyone. Don't write off anyone. No, exactly. But she definitely had that. One of my favourites was 6.30. Of course Ah, it was. 6.30, who was the dog. Who was the dog. Uh, I liked his story and the whole being a failed bomb squad dog which was so cute but then like elizabeth was trying to teach him words and he was like my vocabulary is 691 like he didn't speak for anyone who hasn't read it but you saw these thoughts and you're like dogs do think they don't necessarily form sentences in their brain but they do think and they do judge people and like they you know make assessments and I just thought it was a it was a way of telling a story about a dog that I don't see very much. Yeah, it was so um, beautifully consistent as well. Yeah. That was one of the things that I really appreciated. Like he was a POV and a voice throughout, and his mannerisms were treated exactly as if he was a human character. The way that yeah. he assessed people, the way that he had his own story arc of overcoming the thing for the person that he loved. Yeah. And yeah. I just, if that dog had died, oh, I would, I would have stopped destroyed. reading. Destroyed. I genuinely would have stopped reading because yeah. don't kill the fucking dog. The the emotional hook is don't don't always rely on killing the dog to get an emotional response. But also, I just think that it would have been such a disservice <sighs> to the book, yeah, and to Elizabeth, and I think that it would have been cruel in a way that I don't think the killing Calvin was. But yeah, no, I did love six thirty. Six thirty was a great dog. Based off of the author's former dog Friday. <laughs> but yeah, no, great great story about the dog and a really um, interesting and unique perspective as well because i've read books as i'm sure you have i've read books yeah (laughs) what (laughs) this is the first i'm hearing of it no with i'm sure that you also have read books from animal povs yes i mean as i have yeah and i'm also sure that you've read many multiple narrative books in which an animal is a pov and yet i still felt that the way that this was sort of subtly introduced that oh we're in we're in his Right oh, now. We're just in the dogs, and his yeah. name is 630 
And I'm like, yeah, no. And he just Durkin goes and lies on his master's it. grave and talks oh, to his God. master. And you're like, oh, my brain and my I heart. I nearly lost it then because yeah. of, I mean, Growfriars Bobby. Yeah, yes. Uh, like, oh. can literally bring me to tears if I yeah. talk about it for too long. So no, We won't talk about Growfriars Bobby. We can't. Oh, we can't. Because we'll do a big weep. Big sad. Uh, anyway, right. Moving on from sad dogs on grave sites. Mason's doctor, who I quite liked. Because yeah, he was the no. first one to kind of get her out of there. He, he was genial without being jolly. And I think that was yeah. nice. You know what he made me think of? And I think this is just possibly because of the time period that I'm in. Yeah. He made me think of your really good friend's boyfriend that you like. Right. Okay. Yeah. Who yeah. your yeah. really good friend is having a really busy time and everything's yeah. really hard. But your really good friend's boyfriend is like, I have time to reach out to you because you matter to me. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, oh, actually, this is the first time that we've, we're becoming friends. Yeah. And it was yeah. like that. I was like, it, it reminded me of your partner. It reminded me of my friend's partner. Like yeah. the, the moments in which I realised that they were not people that I knew through my Just friends. extensions of friends. They but were they were friends. also my own friends. Yeah. And I think that that is an underrated bond. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a really good point. And yeah, this it's a bond you don't see very often. And that's not the exact relationship. It, no, is, it is that similar. kind of feeling. Yeah. So I, I really like Mason. Walter, I didn't. I didn't necessarily like that Walter and Harriet. Harriet ended up together. I was like, oh, this just seems a bit. She could have discovered being her own person. I preferred yeah. that Walter and Harriet ended up together than Walter and Elizabeth, which was where yes. I thought it was going. Yeah, for a agreed. While. When it was like, oh, are you gonna really? They've understood do... each other in this way that no one. Yeah, you know, and I was like, please yeah. don't. Yeah, and he never even entertained the possibility. Like, no, it was never like he was just like she was stunning in that. She, he, he was, was literally stunned, stunned by, by her, her. Yeah. yeah which is a good way of doing it but yeah i think there were some great characters i think there were some characters that weren't really done justice i think miss frask i think her very abrupt character arc switch was not necessarily her very abrupt it, seemed, it... it wasn't even her character arc because i think her character arc was longer like i think mm. he saw it coming it was subtle but i think her very abrupt attitude change. coming to power in order to enact anything like it was basically one chapter you hadn't heard from her in months and the next chapter she was head of personnel and yeah. you were like obviously that's how elizabeth experienced it she was a plot catalyst rather than anything exactly yeah. that's exactly yeah. right yeah yeah where she could have been something much more she could have been a frenemy in a way that i think yeah could have been explored more. Which was a relationship that didn't really exist in any yeah. other way. But yeah, I do I do think there were some great characters in this. I just don't necessarily know if I feel like Elizabeth was one of them. Interesting. I don't think that she wasn't a great character. I just think that it was a sea of, like, very good characters. Yes. And, you know, the question that we sort of asked or wrote down was standout characters. And I think arguably... There aren't any. The except six thirty. <laughs> so this is being made into an Apple TV adaptation. Yeah. With Brie Larson. Yeah. I'm assuming as Elizabeth. I think so. Either that or she's producing it. So apparently it was touted for adaptation before it had really been published. Was it was bad. during this pudding war, which happens a little bit more these days, but it's still pretty unheard of, especially for a debut novel. Mm. And yes, a Brie Larson is attached to the project, is okay. the phrasing. Is that right, okay. But I understand that if she's attached to the project, it might be because she hopes to play 
it seems like the kind of role that she would hope to play. And I could see her doing what would you hope to see in the adaptation? What would you like them to really keep? Is there anything you think they could afford to lose? And in terms of casting, is there anyone you'd really like to see other than Brie Larson? Please don't lose the dog. <laughs> if they Please. get rid of 6.30, I will lose my fucking mind. I would prefer that they didn't show graphic sexual assault. Even the producers of House of the Dragon have moved away from that now. So. I really like because that turned me off of Game of Thrones. So yeah. and yeah. I and I just they've gone to really graphic birth scenes. So. Fun. Um, uh, I would yeah I would prefer not, but I think there's a tone to this whole book that I it, I would want to see preserved, and I think that it would be important to me to know that the production team had an emphasis on equality of gender and and race as well yeah because i think this is a book that is about equality and unheard voices and and i think that that would be really important i i don't know i would want to make sure that they took their time with explaining things i don't basically i don't want fake lab scenes i guess Oh, where a woman just pours things into it. Yeah, I think that I think that it's I think that it's really important that they get a scientific consultant on on the show. Yeah, I agree. Um, And also probably a a cuisine consultant, but I think more importantly, a scientific consultant because I think that the point of Elizabeth, the point of this book, is that she's a scientist, not a chef. Yeah, that would be my biggest thing, and I also think that whatever they do whoever they cast and however impossibly beautiful they are because Hollywood, I think that I want them to not exaggerate that. I, I like do away with the favorable lighting. Don't like, don't go full wolf hall. It's in the dark, but like <laughs> it really annoys me when you watch a show and they're like, Oh, this ugly hag. And you're like, I'm sorry. It's <laughs> like, this is fucking a supermodel yes. with clear skin and and the paws of a bibby and you're just like what is happening so i would prefer that it was an attempt at realism within the realms of hollywood how about you yes what's interesting about that is that elizabeth is described as being very beautiful in this and calvin is not and this is if you look at the people who are described as beautiful in the 50s and 60s there's a very different aesthetic to the people who are described as beautiful now mm-hmm. which is not saying one is better than the other but I would like them to think about that. I have feelings about the whole like hot girl in lab coat thing, which is a very Hollywood, like we need people to pay attention, Yeah. put a lab coat and glasses on her. So I think they need to be careful with that because of the nature of what this book actually is. And I think this would translate well to the screen. Mm-hmm. Not that that was the question, but because there are moments of humour that are just so visual rely on an inflection that you don't get from reading possibly you do get more from the audiobook yeah and also part of it relies on not just the inflection but the misunderstanding of the inflection yes misunderstanding the inflection there's things you can do like shot the way you set the shot up so i think this has the potential to be very very funny yes while still being very poignant i would like them to make it a comedy yeah Yeah. as much as possible yeah but while still respecting the nature of comedic drama yeah. Closer to this way up and that sort of thing where there's, yeah. com- there's comedy in it, but yeah. it's also dealing with difficult stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, which would be great. 
So on that note, I think it's time for us to wrap up and rate the wine and the book. So I guess my question for you with Lessons in Chemistry, which I sort of chose, but you sort of chose too, is that what is your rating? And and with that, I guess, did you find it satisfying? I, I found it satisfying in on certain levels in that, you know, ultimately Elizabeth comes out on top and, and one of the one of her male oppressors gets sacked and mm. yeah but i also found it was very minimal satisfaction i don't think in a situation like this where you are dealing with such systemic sexism and every other kind of ism for that matter that we know reading this in 2022 although it was written in 2022 looking back on the time period it's set in that we know is not immediately fixed and is still yeah. not fixed now I don't know how satisfying I could ever fully find it yeah. because of all the problems that it throws up and all the frustrating situations that we see. I also felt like the ending was a little bit lacklustre mm-hmm. compared to the rest of the book and it also did then hark back to her success being based on the man that she chose to love because it was her his yeah. family that then yeah. saved the day. So from that perspective... I don't know. I it, There were satisfying bits. I don't think I felt fully satisfied with the book. But having said that, I, I enjoyed it. I don't know if I would ever read it again. And in terms of our great culture, great rating, I'm going to give it a three. Fair enough. Yeah. How about you? I really don't disagree with you in many ways. So I think that I, I also found it satisfying in many ways. I thought, you know, like, I'm glad that this character got her ending. I'm glad that the other characters within her periphery that we enjoyed got satisfactory endings i think and they they there's a hope for the future that i think you're looking for from yeah. this kind of book but i agree that like the satisfaction is tainted by the fact that we know that this is not enough it's a, yeah. it's a drop in the ocean yeah. and i think that your point about her success being tied to a man is also true my general feeling of the ending was that it felt rushed mm. in a way that much of the book was very methodical and thought through yep. and considered and I just felt that that was even though it had been seeded through the book I'd seen it coming I knew who this pe- these people were when they came in but I still felt like you could have done it differently and allowed for more coming to terms with that rather than it be the fairy godmother ending that it ended up being I gave this four stars on Goodreads but with the intention of giving it 3.5 grapes right. I think that I like you I read it I don't necessarily think that I would read it again but I'm really glad that I read it and I'm Mm. glad that I read it whilst it was a big deal which I don't often feel and I would recommend it to people and I maybe I think you know I maybe would revisit it in a few years so yes 3.5 grapes for me and a middling satisfying ending how about the wine? How did you feel about the taboo Malbec? I don't think I've ever been so indifferent to a wine. It's show. very nothing, isn't it? It's just it's just there. I would, if someone asked me what I drank, I would say red wine. You know when you go into a bar and they, you ask for wine and they say red or white? Yeah. And that's it. it this is, is the red. This, this is, is a very red. good, inoffensive yeah. table wine at any function. Yeah. Look, it's there. It's. I don't even want to give it a 2.5, even though that is slap bang in the middle of the road. Yeah. One and a half. 
I think I would give it 2.5 for the exact reason that we've just said. It's just there. Just it just there. exists as isn't completely inoffensive. It offends me by how inoffensive it is. I'm Yeah, I think with a yeah. name like Taboo, we were expecting yeah. more. Which is a real shame. For the record, seven ninety nine mm. from Waitrose. But I think that that was a discount. So that... In this economy, I probably wouldn't pay above seven. So it's about right. But yeah. I just wouldn't buy it. I think it. it promises more than it gives. Yeah. Mm. Which the book... Does not. Agreed. On that note, we are at the end of the episode this week. If you have enjoyed the episode and you're listening on an Apple device, please don't forget to rate us and give us a review because we love to know what you think. If you haven't followed us already on social media, we're on Twitter at Great Culture Pod, although not if Elon has his way for much longer. We're also on Instagram at Great Culture Podcast. And you can also visit our website, which is greatculturepodcast.co.uk. In the meantime, go have some wine. Thank you for listening. Bye-bye. Bye.